Northern Europe and the Swiss Confederation in the 14th Century by Hans Putz From the History of All Nations from Earliest Times Volume 10 The Age of Renaissance Translated under the supervision of John Henry Wright This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Read by Piotr Natter Scandinavia, excepting Denmark during its temporary feudal dependence, felt the German influence comparatively little, in spite of its missionary and trading connections with Germany. Notwithstanding, the spirit of national independence unaided gained ground in the north. This spirit in turn emphasized the opposition between the Scandinavians and Germans, which led to a series of national struggles. Their outcome was the formation of a new state on the Baltic. The successes which the Hanseatic fleets, manned with citizens, won over their northern enemies, are a fit counterpart of the victories of the English national army over the French feudal host. Denmark had been made a limited monarchy. Constitutional conflicts were not long in breaking out. Christopher II, 1320-1326, wished to free himself from the capitulation which had laid such restrictions on the royal power but the nobility answered his attempt by an armed uprising. The king had to make his escape, and the regency fell to the mighty Count Gerhard of Holstein and Stormarn. By sacrificing the royal prerogatives still more, he bought the election for his twenty-five-year-old nephew, Waldemar of Schleswig. At the same time he had the fief of Schleswig conferred on himself in perpetuity. The dissatisfaction caused by these measures prompted Christopher II to try to regain his throne, but he was defeated and retreated to his half-brother John, who ruled over Falster, Femern, and other islands. There he died in 1332. His son Otto lost his life in trying to reconquer his paternal kingdom. As Valdemar was not strong enough to maintain his position, he voluntarily abdicated, and the youngest son of Christopher II, Valdemar IV, 1340 to 1376, was elected king. Denmark recovered and grew new strength under him. First of all, Valdemar established peace within the realm by simply giving up all the contested districts which he was unable to hold. After five years of preparation, the king showed his real nature. He conquered the island of Funen, while its lord, Count Henry of Holstein, was seeking adventure in the service of England and Sweden. Gradually, Valdemar gathered in the alienated estates and became the second founder of Denmark. He enlisted his people for winning back the southern districts of Sweden by granting them the charter of Kalundborg in 1360. Herein he renounced absolute sovereignty, restored the old rights and privileges of the estates, and promised to call regular diets. With the aid of the estates, the king then conquered Scania, Halland, and Blekingen in the south of Sweden, his kingdom had its original extent again. This set both king and people against the maritime and commercial sway which Germany held over Denmark and Sweden by means of the Hanseatic League. To damage Sweden and to crush the power of the League in the Baltic at the same time, Valdemar suddenly fell upon both in the summer of 1361. His fleet first conquered the island of Öland, then he landed near Visby on Gotland. The strong fortifications of Visby would doubtless have withstood the siege if it had awaited the reinforcements of the Hanseatic League. But the inhabitants of the town were too much embittered by Valdemar's breach of peace. Overestimating their strength, 
they made a sally to try a pitched battle with the aid of the Swedish peasantry. Valdemar, however, defeated them on July 27th, and the city had to capitulate. A part of its walls were razed, and Valdemar entered in triumph. The Danes seized the rich booty stored in the churches and monasteries of Visby, but otherwise the king spared the city and even confirmed its privileges. He put it on a level with the Danish cities in the hope of henceforth drawing the large profits which had flowed to Sweden and of making the Hanseatic League more serviceable. But here the king was mistaken, for the frightened German merchants no longer felt safe on the island. They deserted Visby, which became depopulated and fell into ruins. Danzig henceforth became the chief staple of the northern Hanseatic trade. Valdemar's attack upon Visby had unfortunate results for Denmark itself, for the League was eager for revenge, as was Sweden, which was the chief sufferer. Norway, which was united with Sweden under the rule of Magnus II, also joined the alliance against Denmark. This found another member in Count Henry of Holstein, who wished to regain Funen. The direction of the common war lay in the hands of Lübeck. Led by the mayor of Lübeck, Hans Wittenberg, the mighty Hanseatic fleet attacked Copenhagen in the summer of 1362, took the city, and plundered it. But the fleet was badly repulsed of Scania. The attack on Helsingborg also failed. A truce made in 1363 was prolonged to 1367. It left Gotland in the hands of the Danes. Meanwhile, Valdemar's growing despotism aroused the nobility against him. Also, the Hanseatic merchants had constant cause for complaints. The Danes restricted their trade in every way. To avert commercial ruin, the League had to take to arms again. At a meeting in Cologne, in November 1367, the merchants decided on war against Denmark. Only Hakon, the new king of Norway, stood by Valdemar, who was his father-in-law. The Count of Holstein and most of the princes on the Baltic joined the cities. Duke Albert of Mecklenburg, the nephew and successor of the deposed Swedish King Magnus, renewed his alliance with the towns in order to regain Scania and Gothland. Denmark could not withstand such odds. When he recognized this, Valdemar went abroad, and thus forfeited the esteem of his people. In the summer of 1368, the Hanseatic fleet plundered the coasts of Norway and Denmark almost unhindered. Sweden conquered Scania. The next year, the Danish Council of State decided on peace, regardless of the king's absence. The parties signed it at Strasslund on May 24, 1370. This peace marks the zenith of the power of the Hanseatic League. Henceforth its word was law in the north. The League was to draw the income from the royal estates in Scania for fifteen years. It retained as pledges the fortresses of Helsingborg, Malmo, Skano, and Falsterbo, where it was to have garrisons for the same number of years. Its influence on the internal affairs of Denmark was the most important again. The League won a share in the royal election, for in case of Valdemar's abdication or death, the rule of his successor was to be conditioned on his recognition by the Hanseatic merchants. There was nothing for Valdemar but to buy his return to the throne by submitting to these humiliating conditions. When he died in 1375, without male issue, the Danish princes elected Olaf, the son of his daughter Margaret, by the Norwegian king Hakon. But they diminished the royal prerogatives still more by the capitulation which they forced on the minor king. The Hanseatic League confirmed everything. The regent, Margaret, had a hard task. 
The extension of her regency to Norway on Hakon's death in 1380 did not improve her position. While the uncontrollable nobility usurped the crown domains, the progeny of Gerhard of Holstein brought about their recognition as hereditary feudal lords of Schleswig. In return, however, they granted the regent and king firm support against the native opposition. Thus it came that Margaret gradually found a firm footing and increasing recognition for her useful activity. Accordingly, when the young king died in 1386, the magnates of Denmark called the regent to the throne. The Norwegians followed suit. This event made a great impression in Sweden, where Margaret's nephew, Albert of Mecklenburg, had forfeited all his esteem. A strong party arose to set Margaret on the Swedish throne also. It deposed Albert, who was soon in the power of the enemy, together with his sons. Only Stockholm, with its large population of German merchants, still opposed Margaret. The dukes of Mecklenburg sent out daring seafarers from Rostock and Wismar, who were to bring supplies to the city, and were consequently called victualling brothers. Using the favorable opportunity, they settled on Gothland. Thence they went on their piratical cruises, from which the Hanseatic League suffered much. In its own interest, the League brought about a compromise in 1395. Albert of Mecklenburg and his sons regained their freedom, in return for which the king renounced the Swedish crown. This made the union of the three Scandinavian kingdoms a fact, but it rested only on the person of Queen Margaret, and lacked every constitutional basis for the future. At her accession in Norway, her great-nephew, Eric of Farder Pomerania, had been appointed her successor. For him the queen wished to secure the succession in her other two kingdoms. The estates of the three kingdoms accepted her plan in 1396. Eric was solemnly crowned at Kalmar in 1397, in the presence of the magnates of the three realms. With these, Margaret agreed upon the union of Kalmar. According to its terms, the three kingdoms, while retaining their own constitutions, judiciary, and legislatures, were henceforth to live in peace and friendship. They were to oppose all external foes in unison, and be ruled by one king, whom the estates were to choose from the house of Eric of Pomerania, according to primogeniture. Now, from the first, the United Kingdom contained the seeds of disruption, because it was conditional on a royal election which barred the way to the attainment of a better and more independent position. The greatest gain fell once more to the Hanseatic League, for all its privileges with regard to filling the Danish throne were extended to the other kingdoms by the Compact of Union, which made all the treaties made by any member binding on all the members of the United Kingdom. Naturally, the League recognized the union of Kalmar, yet the old conflicts still continued to break out in the north. The victualling brothers became the scourge of the Baltic trade. They claimed part ownership in Gothland, on the strength of the order Albert of Mecklenburg had once given them to provision the besieged city of Stockholm. Finally, the Teutonic order intervened by buying out Albert's claims and rooting out the victualling brothers. The order then took provisional possession of the island. A war of several of the northern Hanseatic cities against Novgorod was terminated in 1392. While the Hanseatic League was thus spreading the German power in the north, territorial and dynastic changes were occurring in the western Slav countries which were to bring Germany heavy losses. Since Russia had fallen under the Mongolian yoke, 
and Bohemia had become a seat of German culture under Charles IV, the conflict between the Slavs and Germans lay chiefly in the Polish principalities, which had split off from the Kingdom of Poland. At the beginning of the 14th century, Poland began to develop a threatening power in but a few decades. At that time, Władysław IV Wokietek wrested Krakow from Wenceslaus, King of Bohemia and Poland. Later, he won back the other Polish districts on the Warthe and Vistula, with the exception of Pomereln. Lord of Great and Little Poland, he was crowned in Krakow in 1319, with the Pope's consent as Władysław I. 1319 to 1333. With him, the House of the Piasts became the champion of Polish nationalism and grew to be a weighty factor in European politics by its opposition to Germany. He married his son Casimir to the daughter of the Lithuanian Prince Gedimin. The latter gave hope of embracing Christianity. The family union of Poland and Lithuania was to result in great shifting of political power in the East to the detriment of Germany and especially the Teutonic Order. Notwithstanding, Władysław's renewed attack on Pomereln failed. Nor did the combined Polo-Lithuanian assault on Brandenburg meet with success. Moreover, the Silesian principalities of the Piasts freed themselves from the Polish king's overlordship. They put themselves under the protection of King John of Bohemia. The latter now took part in the wars of the Teutonic Order against Poland and Lithuania, burning and ravaging far into their interior. The attempt of the order to get possession of Mazovia, Kujavia, and Dobrzyn led to a bitter struggle at the close of Władysław's reign. The bloody battle of Płowcze in 1331 was a drawn one, but showed to what lengths the national hatred of the two peoples had already gone. At this time, to be sure, Poland was not strong enough to win in the national conflict. This appeared from the growing pressure from without, and the marked internal decay at the end of Władysław's reign. The state required strengthening within. The appreciation of this is the great merit of King Casimir, whom his thankful people called the Great. He reigned from 1333 to 1370. He was a lover of peace, pious though no slave of the church and was free from the fanatical patriotism of his father. Besides, he had a clear insight into the needs of his country, and was happy in the choice of his means. All of these qualities were well calculated to make Casimir I the founder of a new state. He made a treaty with John of Bohemia in 1335 at Visegrad. John received the Silesian principalities of the Piasts, and recognized Casimir as king. The latter also made a truce with the Teutonic Order. When the Polish alliance with the Lithuanians came to an end, and the Poles had every prospect of conquest opened by the extinction of the ruling house in Galicia, Poland and the Order finally made the Peace of Kalish in 1343. Poland gave up its claims to Kurmland, Michalau, and Pomereln, while the Order relinquished Kujavia and Dobrzyn. Freed from his old enemy, Casimir could add Galicia and Volinia to his kingdom in the following year. In organizing these two districts, he emphasized the community of interests of the tribes united under his scepter. Thus he had two codes, consisting of a mixture of customary and written law, drawn up for Great and Little Poland. The king established a royal supreme court at Krakow, the decisions of which guaranteed a uniform development of national law. In like manner, Casimir devoted himself to establishing the legal status of the many German settlements in his kingdom. He codified their law, which was generally that of the city of Magdeburg, 
he set up a supreme court for his german subjects which did away with appeals to magdeburg and freed casimir's kingdom from annoying foreign dependence furthermore the king showed great zeal in spreading the elements of a higher civilization among his people by attracting german immigrants and by furthering trade and commerce this he did by providing for the safety of the highways and by making coins weights and measures conform to a uniform standard but casimir paid particular attention to the peasantry which the noble landowners oppressed severely however even casimir the great did not succeed in checking the baneful development of those social conditions which had always been the great economic sore of the country while the great barons gradually rose to the rank of princes the great mass of the lower nobility the real fibre of the realm sank to an inferior class they made leagues and combated the high nobility and tried to augment their position by preying on the lower orders the servitude of the peasantry thus became the curse of poland for it cut the largest part of the people off from every participation in the national life thus depriving the latter of the one source which might have regenerated it the slav has never desired or been able to develop independently a civic life the results in this field in poland are in part the work of german settlers and in part a product of all sorts of artificial means which ceased to be efficient as soon as the artificial care was withdrawn in spite therefore of good beginnings no extensive city life ever flourished in poland the peasants themselves had no possible way of becoming free or even half free this condition of servitude gave rise to evils which undermined the polish state to such an extent that it finally succumbed to a national catastrophe the stimulating rule of casimir appears on the intellectual side in his foundation of the university of cracow in thirteen sixty two his sway seemed the more meritorious because the house of the piasts became extinct in him and was replaced by foreign dynasties the king designated his nephew louis the great of hungary as his successor in thirteen fifty five the polish magnates acknowledged him as heir presumptive but with this reservation that a change in the succession be permissible if casimir should still have legitimate issue louis too had to make concessions he surrendered the right to levy new taxes promised to be satisfied with the old royal income and to observe the laws and liberties of the kingdom during a so-called progress the king and his train were no longer to live off the estates of the nobility and clergy free of charge furthermore the nobility was henceforth to receive pay for foreign military service a measure which sadly restricted the royal power after casimir had died in thirteen seventy louis of hungary received the crown in cracow but in thirteen seventy four he had to make further concessions to the magnates at Kaschau, which established the predominance of the nobility for the future the privilege of bearing arms was restricted to the nobility it alone was eligible to the higher offices of state and its estates were freed from all taxes and dues louis of hungary consented to all the demands of the nobility so as to secure the succession to one of his daughters the question of succession however proved the source of new disasters for louis who was often forced to leave the kingdom transferred the regency to his mother elizabeth through her partiality to the hungarians she drove the polish vassals to open revolt the citizens of the capital also rebelled and murdered the hated hungarian councillors the regent fled to hungary 
Mazovia revolted from Poland, while robbery and feuds raged within. Nevertheless, Louis continued to solicit the succession of his oldest daughter, Maria, who was married to Sigismund, son to the Emperor Charles IV and Margrave of Brandenburg. He had just won over the Polish magnates when he died in 1382. Immediately bitter dissension broke out. A large part of the nobility demanded of Maria, above all, that she should make Poland her home. They formed a confederacy to carry out their will. In reality, they desired separation from Hungary, as did a party in that country. Savage party conflicts ensued in consequence. Finally, the queen widow, Elizabeth of Hungary, found means to win both parties. She advocated the succession of Hedwig, the younger daughter of Louis, to the Polish throne. After bitter party struggles, which brought civil war on some parts of the country, the parties reached an understanding on this basis. In the summer of 1384, Hedwig was crowned Queen of Poland at Krakow. The ambitious and crafty Agiello, Grand Duke of Lithuania, soon sued for the hand of the Queen, who was only thirteen years old. Besides the conversion of his people, he offered the consolidation of Lithuania and Poland. The great prospect which this opened to the Polish power in the East decided the clergy and nobility to accept Jagiello's proposal. Two years later, he was married to Queen Hedwig. Early in 1386, the Lithuanian prince came with his brilliant escort to Krakow, where he received baptism at the hands of the Archbishop of Gneisen. Thereupon he was wedded to Hedwig and crowned King of Poland. The conversion of the Lithuania was still more external than that of Jagiello, who adopted the name of Władysław II. Christian manners and thought had a hard struggle to introduce a higher culture among his warlike race. Also, the political connection between Poland and Lithuania remained loose at first, although both countries were on the same social and economic footing. But there was this difference, that the Lithuanian peasant was a step more degraded than the Polish one. He was the slave of his lord, the boyar, and had no existence in law, while his master was oppressed by the magnates of the land, to whom he had to render personal services and pay dues. As yet there was no city life in Lithuania. Foreigners alone carried on the trade and industries, especially German merchants, Russian immigrants, and thrifty Jews. Thus Lithuania was the immediate gainer by the Union, whereas the military force of Poland received a considerable increase of power. The Polish nobility exacted important concessions from its foreign royal house. Henceforth the principle was to obtain that all feudal fiefs, dignities and offices, as well as all castles and lieutenancies, should be given only to Polish-born noblemen. The nobility was to be paid in future for military service even within the realm. Their immunity from taxation, like that of the clergy, was confirmed. The jurisdiction over their subjects was to be theirs exclusively, but every acre which their serfs tilled had to pay a rent of two groats to the king. Finally, the magnates reserved the right to make every ensuing royal election conditional on terms of a similar nature. This measure made the Polish monarchy a prey to a demoralizing elective system which was to break up the constitution of the state. The nobles, now the true rulers of the land, took every precaution to keep down all those elements in the state which might subvert their position. In especial, they tried to coerce the cities and exclude them from participation in state affairs. This was a severe blow to the Germans, whom the Poles and the Lithuanians henceforth ruined on principle. 
Notwithstanding their unanimity in this regard, there was at first no lack of intestinal strife between the united peoples. But the ill success of his expedition against the Tartars forced Witold, the Grand Duke of the Lithuanians, to give up the struggle and draw closer to Poland again. In 1401 a treaty was made which regulated the mutual relations of the two countries. According to its terms, the Lithuanians formally recognized Władysław as their lord, while the Polish magnates swore always to defend and protect Lithuania. Witold was to be Grand Duke of Lithuania for life. After his death, the country should fall to the Polish crown. In case a change of rulers should occur before that event in Poland, the Polish magnates promised not to elect a king without the previous knowledge of the Grand Duke. It is a striking fact that here, as on other occasions, the nobles, not the king, represented the Polish state. Poland prospered in the reign of the First Jagiello. By winning back Galicia, reducing to dependence Volhynia, Podolia, Moldavia, and Bessarabia, and subjugating the Ukraine, Poland became strong enough to regain its old districts to the west and south also. A Polish vassal, Duke Władysław of Opeln, had mortgaged Dobrzyn to the Teutonic Order. This was the source of tedious struggles. Finally, it led to a mighty collision, which resulted in a national war between the Germans and Slavs, and had a great influence on the development of northeastern Europe. When the conciliatory Queen Hedwig died in 1399, she advised her consort to strengthen his right to the Polish throne by marrying a Piast. Władysław chose a granddaughter of Casimir, the child of one of his legitimized natural daughters. This princess, Anna, Jagiełło raised to the Polish throne in 1403. His future activity lay chiefly in his conflict with the Teutonic Order in Prussia. Thus he organized the national opposition between the Germans and Slavs. The remarkable state of the Teutonic Order in Prussia reached its zenith territorially and politically by the conquest of Pomereln and the removal of its chief seat from Venice to Marienburg. Since the beginning of the 14th century, the Prussian cities had become very prosperous through their trade with Poland, the Baltic provinces, and Denmark. The chief cities of the Order lands were Thorn, Elbing, and Königsberg, but these were all outstripped by Danzig, which, after the fall of Visby, became the Emporium of the North, and one of its most beautiful cities. The Order gave its cities full liberty in all their relations abroad, so that they were almost independent. By becoming members of the Hanseatic League, they enjoyed the commercial privileges which it had in England, Scandinavia, and Russia. To be sure, the two-folded allegiance of the cities led to conflicts at home, which gradually overcast the friendly relations between the lords of the land and their subjects. That was especially the case since the order as such took part in the trade, and experienced the inconvenient competition of its cities. Originally, the order had been content with having its own needs satisfied as profitably as possible, but its mercantile activity soon overstepped these bounds. Thus, the office of the chief steward of the order was gradually expanded into that of the superintendent of its wholesale trade, under whose direction the domestic and foreign agents attended to the purchase and sales of the order. Its increasing trade gave its subjects cause for loud complaint. This change from a crusading to a mercantile order took place toward the close of the 14th century. 
it was brought about partly by the change which the christianization of lithuania and its consolidation with poland had wrought in the political status of the order nor was the independent position which the teutonic knights took in the ecclesiastical political conflicts of the fourteenth century without influence on the change of the nature of their order in contradistinction to the templars and the knights of st john it had remained true to its national spirit in the great conflict between louis the bavarian and john the twenty second and his successors the order had taken the part of the king and stopped paying the peter's pence to the papacy in its renewed conflict with poland about pomereln the church openly favoured the latter it even went so far as to excommunicate the order after the peace of kalish in thirteen forty three the papal court continued to support the poles while the order had the favour of the emperor who granted it lithuania russia and other lands by charter of course that was of no practical value it only incited its enemies more to overthrow the proud teutonic order the papacy set all sorts of intrigue against it on foot the avignonese court even brought suit against the order which however resulted in nothing after all the body emerged from the deadly struggle more honoured and powerful for public opinion was with it particularly as it still fulfilled its duty as a military order by harassing the heathen lithuanians year after year a closer examination however of the course and success of its campaigns would have shown even then that the order was only fulfilling the letter of its crusading duty for it neither furthered nor even attempted the conversion of the lithuanians the prusso-lithuanian frontier was the scene of bloody carnage which only engendered increasing brutality on both sides it is not surprising that the hounded lithuanians bore deadly hatred to the order to avert destruction they rose in general war under the sons of prince gedimin they wasted zamland terribly but were defeated near rudau in thirteen seventy by the marshal of the order henning schindekopf thereafter they restricted themselves to the defensive in thirteen seventy nine the order made a peace with keistut the last surviving son of gedimin which finally ensured length and quiet to the frontier about this time Winrich von kniprode ruled over the order in marienburg he combined in the happiest manner the duties of a knight of the order with the obligations of the ruler his special care was that his brethren might be able to do justice to the entirely altered claims which they were called upon to satisfy as the officials or rather co-regents of the complex state he introduced the study of theology and law moreover he watched carefully over the relaxed morals and discipline in the order by instituting regular visitations of its individual conventual houses thus he made the castle of marienburg not only the centre of the government but also the point around which the intellectual and moral life of the order centred following the example of his most enlightened predecessors winrich paid special attention to agriculture he relieved the peasantry of unpaid labour with the plough and cart the cities of the order rose to their highest pitch of prosperity their double allegiance to the hanseatic league and the order appears in their taking part in the league's war with valdemar the fourth of denmark while the order as such refrained however it proved the main bulwark against the scandinavian attacks on the german baltic provinces the salient feature of the order's policy was its opposition to poland that gave it its importance in general politics as the enemy of poland it was indispensable to charles the fourth 
Its adherence to the Emperor, in turn, brought it into conflict with the Church, which tried to break its proud ecclesiastical independence. The conversion of the Lithuanians by the Poles proved fatal to the order because it made the fulfilment of its original object impossible. At the same time, the union of Lithuania and Poland under an inimical race entirely shifted the balance of power in the East, while the simultaneous decline of the power of the House of Luxembourg under King Wenceslaus and the great schism of the Church deprived the order of its mainstays. Like the Teutonic Order, the Swiss Confederation, which grew up in the course of the 14th century, was a state within a state. In repeated conflicts with the Habsburgs, the unassuming civil organism exercised an inspiring influence far beyond its bounds, on account of its political and social principles. The army of Leopold of Austria had overrun the Swiss cantons because of their allegiance to Louis de Bavarian but the Swiss defeated the Austrians in the Pass of Morgarten on November fifteenth, 1315. Elated at their victory, they renewed their confederacy in the following December, and had their old charter confirmed by King Louis soon after. The House of Habsburg had to recognize the freedom of the confederation and give up all its remaining rights over the cantons. Lucerne also freed itself from this house by joining the confederation in 1332, which united the four cantons around Lake Lucerne. In consequence of internal struggle, which broke the rule of the prominent families and secured the craft guilds in a share of the town government, the powerful city of Zurich joined the Swiss confederation in 1351. In the next year, Glarus and Zug followed. The accession of Bern in 1353 was of particular importance. The attempts of the Habsburgs to stay the growth of the Confederation had no success. Through the mediation of the Emperor Charles IV, they had to conclude a truce in 1368, which did not, however, mitigate the old hostility. The internal dissensions continued, chiefly with the clergy, which still stood by Austria in great part. The outcome of these struggles was the so-called priest charter, Pfaffenbrief, which was drawn up in 1370. This charter imposed the oath of allegiance to the Confederation on all within its bounds. It excluded all foreign jurisdictions save the episcopal one in matters of marriage and other spiritual cases. It likewise contained stringent regulations for the maintenance of the public peace within the bounds of the Confederate territory. The charter marks a decided step towards securing the absolute rule of the Swiss Confederation within its boundaries, but it brought nearer the clash with Austria, of which the immediate occasion was the support which Leopold III gave to Count Rudolf of Kiburg in his hostile measures against the Swiss. Unsupported and poorly armed, the peasants utterly routed the Austrian knights on July ninth, 1386, at Sempach, northwest of Lucerne. Leopold was left dead on the field. It was with this battle that legend connects the hardly authentic story of Ardolt von Winkelried, who made an opening in the enemy's ranks by grasping all the Austrian pikes he could reach and burying them in his own breast. The Swiss rushed on to victory over his dead body. After an insecure truce, which the Swabian League had brought about, the war broke out again in 1388. On April the 9th, the Swiss completely defeated the Austrians at Nafels. In the treaty of peace which followed, the Austrians formally recognized the Swiss Confederation. End of Northern Europe, 1914-1918
and the Swiss Confederation in the fourteenth century.